Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. This is a special edition of the Power Hour. Now, as you all know, we're a podcast that discusses energy and environmental issues. Today, we're going to veer slightly. We're going to talk a little bit about trade. Now, why are we talking about trade? Well, I'll tell you why we're going to talk about trade, because we happen to have today at the Heritage Foundation two of the world's top experts. And they're here to talk about a spanking new book. I have it right here in my hand. This is what it sounds like. Spanking new book called Trade, Competition, and Domestic Regulatory Policy. So we decided, hey, let's get these fellows on the podcast. I'm sure they have something to say about trade and energy and environment. So we'll, we'll talk about where all those things intersect. And who knows what else will come up. And then we'll just see where we all end up. So without further ado... I present to you Shanker Singham and Alden Abbott, my old friend, Alden Abbott. It's great to see you again. It's great to see you, Shanker, but it's also good to see you. Great to see you. Welcome, everyone. Now, Shanker's not only a trade scholar, but also a trade practitioner. Among other things, he's held top policy positions in both the United States, where he was an advisor to the U.S. Trade Representative, and the U.K., where he was an advisor to the Secretary of State for International Trade. We're also joined, as I mentioned today, by Alden Abbott. Now, Alden, I know that you worked at the FTC, right? Yes, I was general counsel. And you are now at the Mercatus Center? Correct. Where were you before that? I was at Heritage. I was pleased to and honored to be deputy director of the Mies Center, the legal center at the Heritage Foundation, which does such great work. You can't see it, but he's even repping a heritage tie today, I believe. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Very nice. <laughs> Where's your tie? I'm looking forward to you, receiving it. You need to get it. one. Okay, okay, okay. Now, and lastly, but certainly not leastly, we have our good friend and yours, Power Hour regular, Rachel Wilfong. Now, while you might not know... Well... well you forgot we're missing somebody today, Jack. Travis. We are missing Travis. He's not here. Where's he? Travis is not with us today. That's I, I said it was a special episode because we were talking trade. That's not true. The reason it's special is because Travis isn't here. Ah, uh, yes. I get no, it. no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, or I am kidding. Um, <laughs> Travis had a previous engagement today. He was not fired. He did not. He didn't quit. Do, did not quit. He's still here. He's still here. He's just not here today. Correct. Thank you for bringing that up. Now. What I wanted to mention about Rachel, which a lot of you only know her as the energy and environment person, but she's an old trade hand as well. So the point is, the point is this, while this is the power hour that focuses on energy and environment, we happen to have a packed full slate of folks who are going to talk about trade, who know about trade, and will bring something interesting to bear on the issue. So let's get started. First, um, you gentlemen have a new book. That's right. 
Tell me, what's the point of the book? Tell me about this book. Well, the, the point of the book is to try and point out that we could be doing a lot better economically. Lots of people know that. But that there's certain solutions that basically why free trade and support of property rights, protection of private property rights, and doing away with harmful overregulation, why all of these things interact. And if you improve regulation, get rid of over, uh, overactive, uh, harmful regulation, if you broaden opportunities for trade, if you have good competition system, and particularly underlying all of this, if you have strong intellectual property rights, including for and property rights in general, poor, pe poor people are going to benefit around the world. In the U.S., but you're going to have greater innovation, greater wealth, greater prosperity, and we talk about ways about measuring the harm that's caused by all sorts of distortions, largely regulatory distortions that prevent us from moving in the right direction. And we hope that by emphasizing the possibility for reform and talking about mechanisms for measuring it, we can create incentives for governance to perhaps negotiate and trade agreements and to come to agreements to highlight those distortions which will build momentum and support for rolling them back to the benefit of, of consumers and producers and entrepreneurs and innovation around the world. All right. Schenker, what, 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 do you have something to add to that? And I'm, I'm wondering, okay, that sort of gave us an overview. Um, why? Like, what's, what's the why? Why now? Mm. I mean, th this is a heavy, dense, I mean, in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. Um, book. Literally, I, you could read it and be an expert on this issue. So why this now? Well, uh, Alden and I have been cooperating and collaborating on, on this area for, for probably 20 years now. And um, uh, I, I, I did another book um, probably 15 years ago on, on distortions and competition and trade. And from the beginning of, 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 of my career, which sort of began with the fall of the Berlin Wall, what we've seen is that there's a clear impact between domestic regulatory policy, the anti-competitive effect of distortions, as Alden has described, and trade policy. And yet they're all siloed. Uh, trade, trade people, competition people, regulatory people don't tend to uh, interact. And from the perspective of global and from the perspective of GDP per capita, essentially what we have and what we've articulated in the book is that if you want to grow your GDP per capita, if you want to grow your economy, there is a kind of inverted triangle where you've got property rights on the bottom on which everything rests. And then you've got competition in domestically on one corner and international competition or trade on the other. And if you adopt in whether it's energy policy or environmental policy, if you adopt regulations that are anti-competitive, that damage and distort competition in the market, that are over, that are are are, are more are more restrictive than they need to be in order to achieve the objectives of that environmental policy or energy policy, you're going to damage competition in the market. You're going to destroy wealth out of the economy, and ultimately, what you're going to do is push people into poverty. And that's why we think it's so important to um, to get this book out there. And one of the things the book does do in the area of 
environmental and energy uh, uh, regulation is talk about the costs uh, of this, which is not to say that you don't do it. Um, what we want to do is we want to we want policymakers to to actually understand and know the costs of anti-competitive regulation. And there may be cases where you say, you know, this is the cost, this is what's going to be lost in the economy, this is the effect on on people, but it's so overwhelmingly important and objective that we're going to do it anyway. Mm. But right now what happens in environment, in energy, in actually lots of areas, health and safety, labor and so on, there's a knee-jerk reaction to something that's gone wrong and there's no consideration of, mm -hmm. of the cost. And it isn't just business compliance cost. It's actually the impact on competition, impact on the market, impact on the economy as a whole. And it's only when you evaluate that that you can start making decent value judgments about what, what you want to do as a matter of policy. So we wanted yeah. to create a, a sort of normative framework for for people to make those decisions in. I think that's incredibly important. I, as someone who is engaged in the policy debate for a long time at this point, one of the most frustrating things that we encounter is that the um, the political agenda overrides the um, the pros and the cons of the policy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, policy X. It would be nice mm -hmm. if you could say, as a matter of national interest, we should do X, but it will come with these costs. But that's never how it happens mm -hmm. in Washington. As a matter of national interest, we should do policy X, and oh, policy X is going to lead to this many. It's going to have no negative consequences associated with it. Let's just have an honest conversation. Maybe yeah. we should do X, but it has these costs, mm -hmm. and that's cool because it's the right thing to do. And I think trade falls into that that false dynamic all the time. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons we we also wrote the book is we we've we've come quite far on the the road to. Um, developing a metric to measure what those costs actually are. Because um, as long as nobody really understood what the costs are, there is a view that you, you, you want to achieve a particular policy goal, you understand that there are going to be costs associated, but you think those costs are actually quite small. And so the, the delta between an undistorted market and where we are now most people think is not that great, particularly in the West, particularly in the UK, in the US and so on. Um, well, we've been told for decades that we are capitalists. We live in a we 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 operate under an economy of driven by free enterprise, and that and and though that is certainly the mm. the kernel of our economy is free enterprise and capitalism, the layer upon layer upon mm. layer of government intervention in all aspects of the economy. There's very very little of it is actually free enterprise. Mm. And, and what matters is the. Is is the uh, the loss of people of, of actual individual you know people and and and, and actors who are um, going about their daily lives and the question is if you if in fact the difference between where we are now and an undistorted market is actually much bigger than we thought it was that it's actually orders of magnitude bigger even than trade barrier um, restrictions which our our, our work and, and our economic modelling suggests that it is then the impact of getting it wrong on people's ordinary lives is massive. And consequently, also, I mean, also the, the impact of getting it right could also be massive mm -hmm. in the other direction. And you're talking about opportunity for people. You're talking about the kind of house you live in, the kind of schools that your kids will go to. You're talking about real real-life opportunities and things that people will get to do. And as it relates to energy and environment, the energy technologies that are available – the uh, 
the environmental benefits that greater technological innovation yields, so often government frames those things as being the font of government, mm. when in fact they're not. No, they are quite the opposite. You know, it, that, that, we have in, that, we, that the government has spent so many tens of billions of dollars on, say, windmills and solar panels, the narrative is, therefore, solar panels and windmills are now available to us. Never is the discussion had that had we not spent that money, had the government not spent U.S. taxpayer money on those things, that one of two alternative outcomes are far more likely. That investment, that spending would have yielded some better energy alternative, or the actual solar panels and windmills that that spending was supposed to push forward would have actually went towards better business practices and more promising solar panel and windmill technologies and yielded better solar panels and better windmills. Yeah, because, because we know that the single most powerful force to liberate innovation is is actually the competitive force, is actually competition. And when you distort competition because you favor a particular technology, and we saw this in Texas recently, you know, where they had massively subsidized one particular renewable in, in environmental technology and suddenly discovered they had to now you know, subsidize something else that was losing out because they couldn't compete with the government mm -hmm. subsidy. So, you know, it, th this kind of distortion and intervention, uh, I would argue, doesn't ever work, but it's most likely to work if you've exhausted all the innovation there is. You know, the sort of, uh, the, in the 1930s, you know, the, some uh, U.S. economists suggested that we were at the end of innovation. And in fact, we were also at the end of population growth in 1936. We've been at the end of history. <laughs> yeah. We've been, so... So the smart guys from from fancy schools have been predicting ends for decades. Yes. So so 1936, we, we were supposedly at the end of innovation and the end of population growth, and therefore that that justified government in, intervention. But actually, the, the other thing we've discovered is that, in fact, as you said, you know, far from being at the end, we're really at the beginning, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of innovation that, that that is out there. And it's interesting if you look at sectors that haven't been massively intervened with, that, that haven't been you know massively distorted. We have actually seen huge technological advancements. So you think of telecom and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, whereas sectors where there's massive government intervention, distortions and so forth, like large-scale civil aircraft, for example, we find that we're flying pretty much the same planes we were flying, you know, 40, 50 years. Literally, in, in some cases, the same plane that you were flying 40 years, 50 years ago. And we haven't seen the the extraordinary takeoff of innovation and the two things are related you know if you allow competition to to um to take proper effect then these innovations will follow now fundamentally you have to also protect the property rights with which people are competing and that's why intellectual property is so important and we talk about that mm -hmm. in the book as well and if you get all of it right you are more likely to get innovation and you're more likely to take the cost out of um the cost for, for consumers will go will go down now, I think we've done a pretty good job of sort of setting the horizon of what we're talking about here. What do you think, Rachel? I think, yeah. Yeah? I think we're great. Okay. I want to take a step back because I don't want to – I want to take a step back and just do some very basic mm -hmm. defining for our audience. Um, when we're talking about trade, what are we talking about? Like what is trade? I mean, don't, what's trade? Well, tr trade is, uh, by mutual consent, the move movement of goods and services, uh, certainly 
across state lines, but internationally from one country to another. And, and basic economics teaches you to look. If two parties uh, now, of course, can interconnect easily with the Internet, there's, it's cheaper and easier to make connections all over the world to find out who wants to buy my products or what products I should make. Allowing people to follow their own interest and to agree by mutual contract uh, to ship stuff, economists have said, oh, and it's, it's certainly true, by the free trade creates greater wealth because people are able to move resources quickly and efficiently to the things that people want. People want to buy a new technology or use new technologies. Uh, trade will do that. However, what happens is Shanker mentioned special interests is often you'll get companies or domestic interests will say, no, wait a second. We want to protect our particular business. So we want to block trade that interferes with our business, make it harder to bring in imports or for other parties to sell. And that let, let me, mucks let me, up things. Let me interrupt quickly. So what you described originally might be what one would call free trade. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, as a general proposition, most people would argue free trade is good. Where it gets interesting is how far away we are from free trade because of what you just described, Alden. And at that point, so you've described what trade is. We sort of we've laid out that free trade is the the ability for people and businesses to engage in commercial activity across borders mm -hmm. without government intervention. But that's not the real world. Mm. There are things governing trade. Mm -hmm. Could maybe, Shanker, you tell us a little bit, or whoever, um, what, what, what are the mechanisms that govern trade? So um, in, in, a, in a perfect world, um, and, and as you said, I mean, about the only thing that it, all economists agree on is that free trade is good. Um, in a perfect world, voluntary exchange, you know, people coming together to meet each other's needs without government intervention, is the, it would be what normally happens. Now, what what has happened in 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 the world is that uh, human nature has taken its usual course, and um, barriers have been imposed between that you know willing buyer and willing seller. And there are there are all kinds of barriers that that, that ro rose up. Uh, first of all, we had tariffs between countries. So this was a way for the um, the, the 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 seller of a product in one country to get protection from. Um, uh, the, the the seller in another country, uh, same buyer, but forcing that buyer to choose to be limited in their choice. They can't pick the the buyer, the seller uh, from the other country. They have to pick the seller in their own country because of the tariff. So we we then had we then came together after the Second World War and we said no, we're going to lower these tariffs. We had a um, the precursor to the WTO was the was the GATT and and that lowered these tariffs. But we didn't do anything about the other barriers now. It's a bit like drug testing in sport. Um, people will invent barriers quicker than we can discipline them. So you lower the tariff and then you get all kinds of regulatory barriers. So if I'm a, a seller in a particular market and I want to protect my market and I can't rely on a tariff anymore, you know, I might go to the government and get a rule, a rule that prevents that seller in the other country from selling to me. Um, at one point, I think there were... In, in Japan, they, they had impounded literally millions of American baseball bats that were about one centimeter too long for the Japanese game because there was a rule, right? Mm -hmm. So it stopped the American bat sellers selling 
in Japan, which would have been a lucrative business for them. So you, you get lots of people who will come and say, oh, you need the rule for this and the rule for that. And these rules that are asked for, these, this regulatory protection is becoming ever more compli complicated. And the, the area where it's most difficult to deal with is where there appears to be a good reason for it usually some sort of prudential reason, health and safety. And that's where we get into issues of energy and the environment, where there is a good reason to have a particular regulation, right? So what we have to do is we have to say, well, okay, let, if, if you think there's a good reason, you need to tell us exactly what that reason is, preferably in writing, so that it can't be hidden. You know, the, the, the actual reason, the real reason, the protectionist reason can't be masquerading as a, a, a prudential regulation. And then we need to evaluate the cost of that regulation to the market, to the actual economy, because it's people. People in that market are going to pay for this. You know, they're going to pay for it in higher prices and they're going to pay for it in less choice. And so we need to tell them what is the cost uh, of, of this regulation. And then they collectively with policymakers and elected officials need to decide, well, in this case, you know, I'm so committed to a particular size of baseball bat. It's so vital to the Japanese baseball game that we must have only this size of bat. You know, that kind of conversation, mm -hmm. um, you know, needs needs to happen. And you know, sometimes with environmental regulation, you know, things like clean air, clean clean water, and so on, we may very well say, well, we know the costs are, are high. We know that the uh, particular company in the other country, you know, doesn't satisfy these these rules is damaging, you know, th those objectives. And even though there's a cost, we're going to do it uh, anyway. So that's the kind of conversation. Now, in order to have that conversation, you need a really good, robust economic tool that tells you what that cost is. And that's been very difficult to to, to find. And that's mm -hmm. part of what we do, do in the book and our, in our other work is to develop economic models that will tell us what those costs actually are. But what we find is that Often, when people criticize regulation or they ask for deregulation or, or whatever it happens to be, it's focused on the business compliance cost. You know, it's focused on people saying, well, having this regulation inflates the cost of my business by a certain amount. And that's not good. We don't want to inflate business cost. But at the same time, that's not the issue. The issue is what is the damage you're doing to the market? Because that is wealth destroyed out of the market. That's people pushed into poverty. And you, if you're going to do that, you need to have a very good reason to, to do that. And everyone in the political system needs to agree with that reason. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of examples about harm to real people. Americans pay six times as much as they should for sugar, and that affects the prop prices of chocolates, all sorts of products that have sugars because of quotas, limits on the amount of sugar that can be imported. Uh, there used to be big quotas on pr protecting American textile workers. By the way, the sugar uh, quotas protected just a couple of small uh, but very influential American producers. Didn't really help the average person. Uh, textile workers, small number of textile workers uh, were helped. And so lots of textiles sold to lower income people at a high price because of limits on imports. Well, the International Trade Commission here, economists showed, I think it was over $300,000 per year per job was the cost of this. So they said you could, in effect, have gotten rid of the quotas, even if some people lost jobs, had to be retained. You could pay them one or $200,000 a year, and American consumers would be better off. So, so it, that's the point at measurements. 
can really tell people, oh, this is a terrible deal. How do we defend it? Whereas it's much easier if you're just saying, oh, we have to have these quotas because we need to protect uh, working class people in textile mills or working on, on sugar plantations. Well, if you don't really know the cost it imposes, which suggests that they could do something else or be paid and everybody would be better off, you might believe those arguments. But that's thinking more broadly, that's the whole idea. And Shanker and his economist colleagues have been working hard on trying to, to measure a variety of major regulatory distortions. Uh, and I know he's, he's, hmm. he's said a lot more about that elsewhere. And, yeah. and just to throw in, too, an energy and environment example that we're dealing with right now is the gas stove regulations. I hmm. mean, it's a right. prime example of that, that those those costs to the consumer are hidden or virtually non-existent in that entire proposed rulemaking. And there's a lot of mention about the cost to, to manufacturers, the climate-related impacts of all of this. But the transparency there is for, mm. for how this is actually going to impact markets, too. I mean, consumer choice basically thrown out the window with that regulation. So we're experiencing that right now. And, and, and it's, it's, it's worse than that in some ways, because in some areas, um, you're actually not allowed to do a regulatory impact assessment for um, uh, for a particular uh, regulation um, in things like health and safety and and, and um, safety at work sort of stuff. Um, there's no reason why you should not allow somebody to know the cost of uh, of, of oh, something. they got reasons. <laughs> they got specific reasons to not allow us to know those. But just to, just at least to, it prevents them from having to lie about that's it. True, so. That's true. That's true. But it, it, it um, but coming back to the scale uh, of, of 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 the cost and the modelling we've done. I mean, we've we've got lots of uh, models that have that have looked at this. But I'll just pick one uh, where we looked at a two party, two countries, and. We had a border barrier, and we pushed the border barrier inside the border. So we turned a trade barrier into a regulatory uh, piece of regulatory protection. And we found that the cost to global output, the output of that whole system, went down by 11% when um, the, the barrier was between the two countries. And it went down by 37% when the barrier was inside the border. So th that's why I suggest that it's orders of magnitude um, different, the, the, the cost uh, of this. And I think what we want to be able to do is to say to people, look, um, this is the kind of lifestyle you could have if we increased your GDP per capita by $20,000, you know, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and I think the GDP per capita increases could be significantly greater than that. So if you can say that to people, um, the problem with with environmental regulation and, and to some extent energy regulation and you, the one you the what you referred to the gas stove uh, regulation is that it looks like it's being done for a very very good reason. This isn't some you know bank getting some particular protectionism for it or a, a widget manufacturer or something. This looks like it's all about protecting people. And what I think it's important. So we're not saying don't have any of this regulation. What we're saying is, when you propose something, have you really examined whether this is the least costly way of achieving your objective? And that's and, the conversation we want regulators to actually have. And I would argue it should occur at the national level, not as a function of free trade negotiations, because one of the countervailing forces against 
overregulation on the environmental mm. side, and I would argue the labor is a very similar thing, is comp- international mm. competition, regulatory competition. Mm. Um, I want to I, I want to talk about two things that um, are not so positive mm. potentially. So, look, I am um, I'm not only free trade sympathetic. I have been described as uh, a free trade purist of mm-hmm. sorts. Mm-hmm. I'm a, a strong believer in, in free trade, free economics generally. Mm. Um, but I think that there are interesting conversations and important conversations about how that manifests itself in actual policy. Um, and heritage, which has a mm. literally five decades long history of support for free trade, um, is is um, has recently come out in, in, in that some people have said they're not as free trade as they used to be because of where they're at on one of these issues. Mm. And I want to talk about those. And mm. those two are this. Um, the first less controversial one, or yeah, the first mm. less controversial one is free trade agreements. So I, being free trade sympathetic, if not an outright supporter, have been skeptical of free trade agreements in the past. Um not because I don't recognize that they are um, a benefit over the status quo of what was, but that we have come to talk about them as free trade. And I would reject that notion mm-hmm. altogether. Mm-hmm. They do open up, they do liberalize trade between the parties for sure, but they're not free trade. It's very mm-hmm. much managed trade. Mm-hmm. And it very much institutes a whole bevy of the sorts of regulations you both were, were just talking about. So. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that one. Free trade agreements in general. Is it legitimate for a free trader to oppose free trade yeah, agreements? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? On that? I, mean, uh, I mean, if you look back over the last 100 years or so, I mean, we, we've, we've always had managed trade of one type or another. Um, and what the GATT system, WTO system, was designed to do was to try to lower the barriers, right, to get closer to that free trade or trade liberalized open trade in, in environment. Um, when you look at the, so why do we have all these free trade agreements? Because that was not the case in you know the 1980s when the um, Uruguay round was being negotiated. We, we we have these free trade agreements because of the stasis in the WTO multilateral system. Clearly, multilateral is best. I mean, if you want to liberalize trade, all countries around the world should liberalize trade, and the multilateral system is the best way of doing that. But where it's sort of went into, you know, thick treacle and, and was glacially moving. And, and the Doha round, which was launched in 2001, never completed. You know, we haven't had a concluded, big concluded trade round since the Uruguay round in 1994, which is, you know, we're getting on for more than a third of the lifetime of the GATT WTO system without a negotiated round. So what happens is people say, well, I want more liberalization. And the WTO is just slow. I want to get more. And, and that, I think, is a good impulse because that's where the free trade agreement is building on the existing multilateral system. It is liberalizing more. Um, and so you have a lot of trade agreements that are in that category. But you're right. that There are also agreements that are not in that category. They're sort of they really are managed trade agreements. And one thinks that there's agreement between um, at one point there was an agreement between, I think, South Africa and India on mine, mining. It's very limited to one particular sector. And it wasn't a free trade agreement at all. It was just an agreement between two countries about, you know, some aspect of opening up their uh, uh, procurement opportunities to each other. And so you have to look at what's in the agreement. 
And there are a number of agreements now where, where if you look at them, you see a whole range of things that have nothing to do with liberalizing trade or competition. So the yardstick we use is what's the purpose of trade liberalization? This is why I say international competition, domestic competition, it's all competition. The purpose of trade liberalization is to stimulate import competition, one type of competition. But you want to have as much competition to, to get to a consumer welfare enhancing point. And to the extent there are barriers in between, you can use trade agreements to knock down those barriers and get you to that point. And there are some agreements that have certainly you know, gone uh, in that direction. But if you look now, there's a lot of agreements where they're being used by countries to secure a particular type of labor set of rules in another country, particular set of environmental rules on another country. Um, and they're actually not really about liberalization or competition. They're about regulatory harmonization. Right. Despite the nomenclature, because they're often referred to as free oh, trade they all agreements. Are. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, well, you have to differentiate it, them. So, for example, the U.S., the Biden administration right now has a initiative with the Asian countries called uh, the, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Well, there's no market access in, in that agreement, which means that you have to agree, if you're the, the, the other country, what the U.S. tells you on labor, environment, and these other areas. But you don't get any market access better than you do now mm -hmm. with, with the U.S. So that's not really a free trade agreement or an open trade agreement. It's really just about projecting regulatory power. Mm -hmm. um, the next issue that I wanted to discuss is um, the more, I guess, controversial one. I don't know. Um, China. Mm -hmm. and sort of the idea of national security exemptions. I know that um, as a conservative who, 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 is always, who has always believed in free trade, as I mentioned, I get the national security exemption. And though it took me a while to get my head around the broader China issue and as it relates to trade and, and, and should we – did we make a mistake with China and WTO and now is it time to try to rectify that? Um, but I'm comfortable with with, with, with with that conclusion where Heritage has – I agree with um, where Heritage concluded that China does present a threat and thus mm. does – justifies that national security exemption and that you can be both free trade and want to limit trade with China in certain ways, maybe broad ways depending on how that all evolves and that those are not mutually exclusive points of view. I'm curious mm. your all's perspective on that. Mm. I mean – so if you believe that trade liberalization is about liberating the forces of competition, uh, as we've sort of discussed, then you cannot ignore uh, trade with a country where those forces are artificially suppressed. And they're artificially suppressed specifically to give that country's pr primarily state-owned companies an economic and trade advantage over, over you. It makes no sense to sort of stop your vision of competition at the border. And so this is one of the reasons we wrote the book, actually, is because because there are these silos, there's a trade world that focuses on what happens at the border, and then there's a competition world that focuses what happens inside the border, and they don't ever meet. It was really important to us to express that you can have a very open – I am a, as classical a liberal economic thinker as I think you'll find. And I absolutely agree that – where you have a market, the systemic market distorter, and China is not the only one. We use China as an example of it, and it, it is an extreme example of it. But there are many countries and many sectors where 
in in developed countries uh, where there are there are significant market distortions that damage competition, give un, unfair advantage to a particular company in that country in, in its external uh, trade. And I think it, I think it is totally legitimate to say we are going to tarificate, we're going to apply a tariff consistent with the scale of your distortion, the advantage you've given in terms of cost reduction of your enterprise, which is not has not been secured because of the ingenuity and the technical excellence and the and the and the success of that company it's been secured because the government has given it to them mm -hmm. and i think it's totally legitimate to to have a sort of mechanism in place a robust mechanism that takes away that advantage well let, let, uh, not to disagree nor to debate with my guest mm -hmm. but one could then apply that logic to the idea that because alden's country has lower labor costs mm -hmm. I then can justify a tariff to so, um, yeah. to offset that. Would that not hold true based not, on what not, you said? No. So, so what we would say, this is why we use competition as a, as a yardstick here, um, is where you have issues like that, and this is particularly true of environmental law, right? So the way we think that should be dealt with is – there would be if I am artificially lowering the cost of my of my state-owned company through a subsidy, or I'm giving money that's general free water, free land, whatever. That that can be tarificated as a distortion. Um, in the area of labour or environment, it, what we have said is that if you have an international agreement that everyone is a party to, and a country is deliberately derogating from things it has already signed up to, in order for trade advantage then that could be a distortion. Now, the question would then become, and we use the phrase anti-competitive market distortion, not every market distortion is going to be actionable. You have to show that it has a real effect on a relevant market for competition. And many of the things that we debate uh, actually won't. Uh, it kind of mm -hmm. depends on the sector and it depends on a lot of, uh, it's very case specific. Uh, but if you can create a framework where that applies and where, in environment or, or labor, there are international agreements that countries have signed up to. This would only kick in as a distortion if the country was deliberately derogating from something it already signed up to. Yeah. Well, you're quite right. I mean, as a, as a general matter, for example, it's pro-competitive to buy cheaper goods from of equal quality from producer A. That producer A has cheaper goods as a general matter because the labor costs are lower. Uh, for, could be for a variety of reasons, but not because of gov special government subsidies or intervention. Sure, it just says under American modern antitrust law, too, if, uh, it's perfectly fine for a firm to be driven out of business because it has higher costs and can't and is uh, hiring more expensive labor, can't compete effectively with a more ingenious firm that's come up with a cheaper way to make things. That's the way markets work, and you don't want to interfere with that sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and let's uh, look at China a little bit more. Um, one of the things that has driven many of us in the free trade community to rethink our views on China is not, not for, let, let me just speak for myself. It's not the state-owned stuff. Mm -hmm. I've always been skeptical that, um, for better or for worse, and I'm admittedly not a trained economist, but I've always come, you know, I've always been skeptical of applying um, tariffs as a response to different state interventions because I think 
all states intervene at all different levels at all different times and it gets really complicated. And I also believe it ultimately works itself out through um, through different economic um, evolutions over time. But what makes China different is the specific threat it poses. Um, I don't even want to say potentially. I think it's a recognized threat. And so how do you deal with that? Like, you know, we're so integrated with China. Hmm. And let's just – I don't want to put – I don't know what your thoughts are on China and the threat they pose. But let's just suppose they are hmm. a threat. Um, here's one of the things I've thought about and I haven't resolved for myself, and I think it's an interesting question. Um, are tariffs the right response to that? Um, I question tariffs because to me a tariff is a tax on Americans – and so it's government saying, it's kind of bad, but you can still have it. You just got to pay a little bit more for it. And if um, if that thing is really bad, we should just ban it. Like if, if we have concluded that China is a threat and there are certain things that we should not deal with, we should just ban them. How from a economic, a, a, an actual economist perspective – like, how do we work through those things? And are those concerns? Or how, how do we deal with that? And still maintain the, 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 the art of it is, the policy art of it is, how do we address that issue without it bleeding into distortions in all other parts of the economy, which is often what happens. You know, you have a kernel of an actual problem. In addressing that, you then create these, these, these economy-wide distortions. Right. And I think um, that's why, again, we come back to only market distortions that have an anti-competitive effect. And you've got to show the anti-competitive effect. So in, in practice, it's actually not that easy to, to do. Uh, and only in the most egregious cases will, will, will it become uh, a factor. But where, where there is an egregious case, where, where China, let's say, we, we talk about China, so we'll, we'll continue on that theme. But it could be any country that, that distorts in a way that has an anti-competitive effect. What is that actually doing? It, it's it's it, essentially what you're doing through that distortion is if you can show the anti-competitive effect, you are essentially destroying, you're, you're, you're damaging um, a combination of productive and allocative efficiency, as we would say in, in, in economics. You're, you're damaging consumer welfare, global welfare. So you're destroying wealth out of the global economy. So this is not a good thing, you know, to to uh, to be destroying wealth out of the economy, uh, and you're damaging, uh, in this case, the 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 U.S. both the U.S. firm and ultimately the U.S. consumer as well because of the damage to the global economy. So I don't think you can sort of turn a blind eye to that. I think you have to act uh, on that, and the, the the best, most forensic way of acting on that is taking away the the impact of the distortion. Um, but uh, I think with regard to China as a security threat, which is an additional uh, additional threat, remember the tariff only applies to goods. I mean, there's a whole range of other things. Most of the things that we buy these days are services. So this tariff discussion doesn't even touch mm -hmm. that. So so there are issues that 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 you can you can do with respect to licenses to do with uh, which gets to your point about banning you know things. Um, and and also access to capital. I mean, it's quite interesting that uh, the same China SOE will go to the market in New York, and in its listing prospectus, it will note all of the government interventions and benefits it gets in order to show that you know it's worth investing in this. 
Um, and, Just like American green energy companies. Well, they're, they're, they're not, we're not, China's not alone <laughs> in this. And um, so, so then you would have um, the, uh, the, the company going to New York and, and getting that, and then they would go to Washington and tell USTR that they didn't receive any of those things. Hmm. They deny all of it. Interesting. Right. So uh, denying them access to capital if they are so distorted, you know, ma making sure that in government procurement, for example, I mean, a lot of Chinese companies are able to price, you know, literally uh, two thirds lower than a normal, a normal private mm -hmm. company would be able to. This is why Huawei has become so prevalent all mm. over all over the world, and this is why Lucent Technologies and uh, Ericsson and other other companies that were competing in this place don't exist anymore. Right? Mm -hmm. Huawei just was able to blow them away. It, it's uh, it's interesting that the dynamic. Not only like green energy companies do does China list all the interventions to demonstrate its long term viability, but then they come back and say, oh, we're, we're not getting any of that. Just like, and I hate to just mm. pick on the green energy companies, mm -hmm. but then they will also come back and say, oh, we, we don't need any subsidies. We're, we're cheaper than everyone. You know, we can, we can, we can keep it going. Um, we are coming to an end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. There's one thing that I wanted to make sure we brought up before we, we ended, which is I know work that you've done, which is uh, the, the uh, consumer welfare versus producer welfare and how those things are calculated and how we should think about those in looking at trade. Yeah. So I think one of the, 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 the labors that Alden and I have been engaged in over the last 20 years is making the consumer argument for all of these things and sort of explaining that there's a consumer welfare uh, benefit to liberalization and competition. Unfortunately, um, the way we tend to think about things is very much mercantilist producer welfare. In other words, um, when we talk about a trade agreement between the US and, and some other country, we immediately talk about what are our firms, our exporters, how well do they do out of this deal? How well do the other side's exporters and, and firms do out of this deal? Whereas what we should be doing is thinking about what's the effect on our consumers as a result of this uh, of this deal. I mean, I think this is a this is very much a perspective. It isn't about a particular entity or another entity because every business is a consumer of something so it's not a uh, it's not a consumer versus business kind of right. di dimension it's it's if you are and this is again very true of energy energy is a si significant cost for many many producers in fact for some producers like steel it's about half the cost of the whole product mm -hmm. so lowering those costs is incredibly important so steel companies who often seek protectionism as producers are actually consumers of energy. And if you can get them to think of themselves in the consumer sort of uh, mold and figure out how they get consumer advantages from trade agreements, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it's all about using the force of competition to lower cost. And if you do that, you'll liberate efficiency and you'll liberate uh, wealth into the economy. Thank you. Um, I have to say, I think that we pulled off a trade conversation that focused on energy and environment. I want to thank you both. Before we sign off, though, do either of you have anything else that we missed that you want to mention? Uh, just one big comment. Adam Smith, some people call him the father of free market economics, wrote in Wealth of Nations that a true end of production should be the benefit of a consumer. And he explains why as a moral matter that's the case. So I think this is not some new notion. It's a notion that is well should be well understood. 
and uh, it is a neutral principle that we can advance to to promote uh, benefiting people in our country and around the world. Here, here. I I'll, agree. I'll conclude with one one other thing that Adam Smith said that we quote in in the book in terms of the 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 worlds of trade and competition were you know what we're suggesting again is not new. Uh, Adam Smith wrote that mo uh, monopoly was the sole engine of mercantilism, not just an engine, not just one of the ways of achieving mercantilism. It was the sole engine of mercantilism. And so that connection between competition, conditions of competition and trade has always been, uh, you know, two sides of the same coin. The one thing that Adam Smith did not write but should have <laughs> is that you can ignore the invisible hand but eventually it will punch you square in the jaw. <laughs> and one last question. How can people find and get their own copy of this great, great book? Well, you can just uh, go to Amazon or some other website that and Google and put in our names and trade competition. Just those for Alden Abbott, Shankar Singham, trade competition. A book should uh, pop up and it's published at Rutledge, R-O-U-T-L-E. DGE. In fact, they had a sale going on. Uh, Rutledge Publishers online, but it's widely available online from a number of sources. There you go, folks. Competition in action. It's on sale. Get yourself a copy. I was going to say, we will put a link to it in the show notes so that you can just go right on and buy it. There you go. Rachel, I forgot one really important thing. What's that? How can people reach out to us, which we need you to do? Yeah. Uh, people can reach out to us at Again, I'm stealing Travis's bit here, uh, but at thepowerhour at heritage.org, you can email us there. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, you can get The Power Hour anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search The Power Hour Heritage, and you'll have access to our full episode library. Outstanding. And let us know if you liked this podcast. You want us to veer off into different issue areas. We will certainly do that. I want to thank everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to this special edition of the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends and family and colleagues to check us out. Rachel, you already told us where we could be found, so I don't need to do that again, which is in my notes. So I think with that, oh, I forgot the most important thing. The book <laughs> is Trade, Competition, and Domestic Regulatory Policy, Trade Liberalization, Competitive Markets, and Property Rights Protection by Shankar Singham and my good friend Alden Abbott who I'm so happy to see Alden you were thanks. awesome as you always are thanks thanks Jack great to see you again thank you everyone have a good day thank you very much